You can count on one independent radio station to do what it's been doing for 67 years. Staying vigilant as always. 94.1 FM, KPFA. Cover to cover. I'm your host, Nina Serrano. Today, my guest is Javelin D. Richards. She's a writer, a KPFA radio host with me, a film director, a theater director, and solo performance artist. Javelin is best known for her international solo performances in what she refers to as nappy-headed love stories, black love and intimacy. And with her new book, Tulips for Evening, her first novel, she has brought the intimacy of black lives that really matter. Welcome, Jovelyn, to the program. Thank you, Nina. It's good, Nina. It's good to be here with you this afternoon. Well, it's very exciting to have you here as a fellow author because we have both written our first novels. Yes. We're called indie novel novelists, right? Yes, yes. that's us. Yes. Indie girls. Indie girls. So, your novel is called Tulips in the Evening. Tulips for Evening. Tulips for Evening. And... My first reaction on opening the book was what a powerful and intimate story this is because it pulls you right into slavery. I mean, it's not about slavery. It's inside it. It's the intimate view. Could you talk a little about that? Well, a part of my work is to take the voices of women and to allow the stories of women during whatever particular time in history to lead the story. So if there's atrocities that is happening as it was in slavery, I wanted the emotional details, not the physical, necessarily the physical, the bombings, the shooting. I wanted what people felt, how they experienced their life. What was the moment to moment building of their existence and so that we have seen films on wars and slavery and all types of atrocities in the world but we rarely get the chance to see the intimacy that still happens within our lives as people and that's really important to me that's my driving force which is why i share uh uh, the work I do, Nappated Love Stories, Black Love and Intimacy, which is not always at the forefront of America's consciousness. We don't see black people's lives in their intimacy, and in, in we don't we see the struggle or the political social drama, but not the daily intimacies, not sexual but emotional. And I believe that when we see the emotional lives of each other, we began to connect on a deeper level. Well, I think as much as I've read of the book, it's a very gripping book, I've just beginning it, that the 
the tone of the book, like the tone of your voice, which is very soft, very beautiful, very tender. I think you have a lot of empathy and tenderness uh, towards all of your characters, even even the evil slave owner. Uh, that you you look inside the character and and let them speak. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about post-war Civil War days in the 1800s when black and whites are still trying to figure out what they are to each other and to one another. And can you tell us how this gripping novel speaks to that and maybe even read some? Yes. The novel starts out just before the Civil War, so it sets us up to know who the characters are. So there are two wealthy landowners who have the largest plantations in Springfield, Arkansas. They have a lot of political power. Uh, we see the Thomas, who is the brutal overseer, and then the Civil War happens. And when the Civil War happens, it, it tumbles everyone's reality. And the white Southerners, who were not happy with the results of the war, whose lives have been dismembered in many ways. So they're trying to figure out who they are now since they can't legally own slaves. How do they redo that? How many of them felt as if they if they could own slaves, at some point they could be as wealthy as these two landowners. And for blacks, after the war ended, they were trying to understand what is it to be free? What does that mean to be free? And so in there, I wanted to show the characters and how they struggled with this here. So here's a piece of the writing of the story where the weather in Springfield at that time, post-Civil War, seems to be turning against, in the, at least in the minds of white people, that the weather's turning against them. And they have committed an act against someone for gold to try to re- rebuild their lives. And so they thought the gold would change circumstances if for temporarily for them to start rebuilding their lives. So they've stolen, they've not stolen, but they've gotten this gold from somewhere that they should not have gotten it. So it's August. On the 23rd of August, there arrived a strong winter in Springfield, Arkansas. When heat in past years rose above above 100 degrees, those that had prayed for rain had never imagined balls of hail. There would be no crops. Nearly everything but the trees got up and moved away, gone and goodbye. The two families in the group took their share of the money, the gold, and they headed north to get a handle on industrialization. And then there was that mysterious song that had come to visit the trees and hills. It was gone. Nobody had heard it since the last gathering at the hub when the boy had chased after the couple and never returned home. Oh, the gold had given a bit of hope, but the price was higher than imagined. 
They wanted to go to help them forget the preacher they chased out of town, the misplaced birds, the ghost of their relatives still crying after the Civil War. They even tried to ignore the blood they were carrying on their hands. Sam had not returned with the red-headed boy. The boy was lost. And Sarah and Robert had just disappeared as well. This is after they had taken money. And they... Sarah is the landowner's daughter that was pre-Civil War. And they stole the money from Sarah. And they sent that boy with the remaining of her property to her. But unfortunately, something happens when he's trying to make up what they did wrong, the grown people. So that's what that passage is speaking to. Can you, I keep hearing another sound here. Uh, could you just pull that plug of that headset that's next to you? Maybe it's creeping in here. I think I still hear it, but we will continue. You know, your words, I know that you're coming from a storytelling and theater background, right. but your words are poetry. Poetically There's, spoken, yes. Yes. And I know that the the Earth, too, is a character in your novel. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you're personally familiar with Arkansas. Do you have roots from Arkansas? Have you been to Arkansas? (laughs) My mother and my grandmother is from Cotton Plant, Arkansas. Most of my stories take place in Arkansas and and only because it has that historical feeling to it. Yes, I visited as a child and the stories that my mother gave me about Arkansas um, stayed with me, and as we talked about earlier, those those familiar places that our families give us, they they come back to us, and they're transformed into stories in a very different way. So yes, Arkansas. So can you read us a passage or talk about the voice of the earth itself as a character in your book? Well, that was a part of what the... Uh, and I'll, I'll actually talk about it and as, and not read necessarily about it because I was trying to find the appropriate passage, but I couldn't. But it, what I just read about in terms of the the strong winter and the rain and they got hills, uh, hills of snow, ice and snow, and then there's these birds that come from... They migrate from... They're unfamiliar birds that migrate, and so it scares the white southerners like where did these birds come from where's the hell and and where's the snow why and it's august and it's supposed to be a hundred and some degrees they're used to that and yet it feels in the story that they also feel that mother nature is punishing them that there's a curse because their crops can't grow the ground is frozen the ponds are frozen and they feel that the civil war led them And them losing the war led them to this tragedy. And they feel like the Negroes who are free has also put a curse on them as well. Wow. Mm -hmm. So they believe that because at the time of the story, there are five Negro women who are living in the former plantation house of one of the owners. Both of the landowners are now dead. They died uh, 
One died before the Civil War, and the other died just at the Civil War, and they were both murdered. So they were landowners. So the the white Southerners are feeling at post Civil War. How was these Negro, formerly enslaved women, actually? living in one of the most powerful plantation houses. Just by that alone, they feel there's been a curse. There's a curse on us. And so that begins this plan at some point where they decide we need to go kill these women to end the curse. Our lives can at least start to go back to the way we once knew it before the Civil War and laws can go back to the way they feel the law should have been that Negroes are property. You know, this really relates so much to what's going on right this moment in the post-Trump election moment. It did. It dawned on me, and this, and I started this novel in 2010. I was in 2010. I was living for a few months in Budapest, Hungary, and this novel came to me then, and. What I thought then was that the characters were coming to keep me company in Budapest in my flat. That they wanted, because I'd never been out the country. I didn't know anyone in Budapest. I just knew I wanted to leave America for a little while. And in my flat, as a writer, I'm just I'm there, and suddenly the characters start coming. These five black women, and he started. Talking as writers will understand, or maybe any artist will understand how the muse comes to them. And so I completed the novel, and then this year I thought, oh my gosh, this is so. What's going on now? And in fact, I'm gonna read a, um, if you don't mind, I'm gonna read a passage. Oh, please do. Yes, and this is the introduction of the women, uh, the five formerly enslaved Negro women. And they're living in the plantation house named Culver Tusk. And again, the white Southerners are trying to plan how to get to that house to kill the women and take over the plantation, take over that land, which doesn't seem to be affected by bad weather. It is lush and beautiful. So this is the chapter, part of the chapter on the women of Culver Tusk. This kind of explains why they feel cursed. If they can look over at that plantation that where five black women are living and see the weather is different there and that their crops are thriving, would make them start thinking that it's a curse. There's something across that line. It's almost like the line of segregation. That line that, that they want to cross has a lot of implication, but they're also afraid to cross it. They want to, but they're afraid because it seems mystical, magical, and there are ghosts involved. So, the women of Culver Tusk. The cold breeze that came to replace Springfield's summer heat was a blessing. The rigid humidity of the area was short-lived that season, and nobody in the house complained. Didn't matter that the breeze was so soft it barely made it through the open doors. The breeze was noticed by the Negro women as it chased the fallen leaves on the road outside. They agreed. This pump water, sweeter. Thank you, Jesus. That same breeze crawled into the yellow pine floors of the house, which made walking barefoot a treat. The women of the house knew weather, knew how to read the woods. The woods told them an early, harsh winter was coming. 
They did not believe in asking God about his earth or the doings of it. That's not our business. What was their business was the 12 deputies that rode up to arrest the women or more than likely kill them. The white men came down off their horses, hands on guns, and stood among a gang of hound dogs, lunging forward with madness. Thick chains snatched the dogs back, chains the women personally knew the weight of. Between the shouting of the head deputy and the dogs barking, the women could not make out what was being shouted at them. The women waited, seemingly unafraid or even disturbed. They waited until two of the deputies were able to get the dogs settled by taking them down the road near the woods. Sir, can we help you? spoke the thick woman, dark as molasses, sitting on the wide chair. Her voice was without concern, if indeed she had any at all, which she did. Who run this house, gal? Nobody, sir. It runs itself. The sheriff looked around at the other men. You getting smart with me, gal? No, sir. I just answered your question. Is there a white person in the house I can talk to? No, sir. Here y'all practicing witchcraft on this land, worshiping the devil. No, sir. Ain't never heard of such a thing. Cursing the land of the farmers, he wondered to himself. What the heck you doing in this house? This used to be the home of H.G. He called to one of the deputies. And they leaned onto one another and talked. Which one of you is Mary? Nobody, sir. Lena? That's my name, sir. You former slave of H.G., right? The heavy woman leaned against the rail of the porch. Her back was trying to go out and she took a moment to negotiate herself. No, sir. Grove was my master. The sheriff put both hands in his pocket and leaned against the wagon. And who you other Negroes belong to? The smallest of the women stepped up to the edge of the porch. Her shoulders pulled back. The rag on her head covered her forehead and nearly her eyes. But the chef, seeing the strong bone structure and jawline, line, knew there was nothing small about this Negro woman. The shape of her mouth let him know it was filled with tobacco. She turned to the side and sure enough, spit a straight line off to the side. Not a drop hit the porch. Sir, we don't belong to nobody but ourselves and each other. We's free. The chef took his gun out. Come here, nigger gal. The eye of the barrel was pointed at her forehead. It was the first time any sign of fear rose, and it was not in the woman herself, but the sheriff powerful writing yeah and this this character sylvie she was the first one that came to me she actually fought in the civil war as a man oh she fought as a man in the civil war you're giving me goosebumps <laughs> let's connect the dots into <laughs> yeah. the reality of it she fought in the civil war as a man and she's one of the first characters that came to talk to me while i was living in budapest and she her strength, she's so tiny, she's bird-like, but she has the strength of 
a thousand trees in the forest. She's just strong, and I really, one of my, yeah, there's no favorites. How did that other woman come to you, that other character, the first one that spoke? Lena. Lena. Lena, who was a, a central figure, she came to me running. And somewhere in the story, you'll find out her story, because the the story really, the, st- the story begins with each of them in different ways, but Lena's story goes all the way back to Grove, the first plantation, where she first ran, and something happened in her running that changed her life dramatically. And she came to me, and she was running. And as I began to write, I understood. I knew she was running for freedom, but I also understood very quickly in the writing the price she was going to pay. So this was doing doing a slave pre-Civil War. It's remarkable that it was when you were out of the country that American history, that very personal American history, came to you like that. It was remarkable, and I don't take light of the gift that it brought me and, and what it was offering me, and was humbled by that. And when I came back here, I just continued writing until it came to completion about a year or so ago. If you've just tuned into the show, this is Cover to Cover, and I'm talking with the author and KPFA radio host, Jovelyn Richards. She's just written a new book, Tulips in the Evening. Tulips for Evening. Tulips for evening. For evening. And it's interesting that it's for evening because evening is yet another character in the book. Yes. Evening is the daughter of an African man and a Native American woman. She's in her 60s. And actually, all the women in this story is 60 and over. Uh, So they have lived through decades of stories challenging stories and so now in this wonderful part of their lives they are defining what freedom means for them so as we just saw with the in the house with the women freedom meant not questioning god just walking around enjoying the day evening lives down the road in a house 60 years ago something happened and she's waiting now for a nun to come from Cincinnati, Ohio, to tell her news of her father. She has no memory of her father. She doesn't remember what happened. And her mother, her Native American mother, never told Evening what occurred 60 years before. So she grows up in a house with her mom. Her mom passes. She's now 63, and she finds out that a woman a Catholic nun is coming to tell her about her father. But her childhood was marked with the loneliness. And I'll read a... a I just have one question. Yeah. Why is it that she has no memory? She has... Because she, she, when her father was taken from her, she was two or three. So she doesn't remember her daddy. She only knows the life with her mama. But all her life, she wanted to know her daddy so bad. So I'll read an excerpt when she's, I think she's five, when she's still long, when she's, yeah, she's longing deeply for her daddy. And so she, and she wants an imaginary friend because she thinks that her mama has an imaginary friend called her daddy. 
because her mama does certain rituals every Sunday around her father that she doesn't understand since she doesn't remember her daddy. When she turned five, an imaginary friend showed up, granting her childish wish. The season could not have laid a more welcoming mat for his arrival. The whole earth burst forward with every stain of gold that it possessed. The hills were in full glory of flowers, and the smells, coupled with the scent of the river, came in her bedroom window. She got up and, with her mother's nod of permission, walked the short distance to the river. He was standing in the water, wet and smiling. He stood blocking the bright sun of the day, a little boy with eyes dark as a country road at midnight. I'm six years old, he said. Brown skin, new and wet. For sure, it was her daddy when he was a boy, she thought. Where you been? Excited, she did not wait for an answer. Want to come to my... She stopped herself. Our house? He nodded, yes. The drops of water holding onto his lashes sparkled with sunlight. My daddy's beautiful, she thought, and reached for his hand. Come on. The happiness in her voice rippled with emotion, like the waters from which he had emerged. The plants they passed in the fields were beautiful. She called out each name, just as her mama had taught her. The sweet smell of honeysuckle was everywhere. Mother gets mad at the honeysuckles because they smother her plants. As the boy, her daddy, walked alongside her, she heard the comforting swish of his wet pants telling her that he was indeed real. So it goes on to share what happened when she when she does realize that that's not her daddy, but it's a boy that had, from what we know from the story, was thrown in the river, and he's come back with his own story at a time when she needs an image of her daddy. And is her imaginary friend. She comes, yeah, he comes back as... An imaginary friend, but he is real. He does. He is someone who drowned in the water. But with the story, I don't really go into that. The story doesn't. But just that he came out the water at the right time, and for her, at least, she could hold the fact that there are things called imaginary friends, and so she that helps her understand her mother's journey every Sunday when her mother does certain rituals. And I don't want to give that away. She does certain rituals every Sunday, and from that evening thinks my mother has an uh, imaginary friend called my daddy and she wants one so the little boy comes out the water long enough to be that for her well this is an enticing and rich story and i think people might want to be able to read it for themselves yes how can they find this book well you can as you can call your independent bookstores and you can ask for Tulips for Evening um, by Javelin D. Richards. And I would love to have feedback on it on my website at www.javelindrichards. No, no, not Javelin D. Richards, but javelinrichards at .com. Uh, and go to my website anyway and just read some of the things that uh, a little bit more about me. Can but we give that again, the uh, website? www.javelinrichards.com. And that's J-O-V as in victory, E as in L L. Ever, I'm going to say ever. L is in love, Y is in yellow, N is in Nancy. Uh, Richards with an S dot com. And the book is Tulip. Tulips for Evening.
Well, this has been really wonderful, and I'm so glad that I have the book because I'm dying to finish it. I wonder how you could describe to us the process of writing. You said you started it over 10 years ago. No, no, in 2010. 2010. 2010. So uh, the process was the, this particular story came to me in Budapest, and uh, it was wonderful. And I loved the characters. They watched over me, and I watched over them in regards to writing this story out. And I'm working on a second novel because one of the characters in Tulips uh, has no memory of her enslavement. So the second novel is Clara's memory. She would now begin to remember well, we'll be looking for that book by Jovelyn Richards. Yes. And this book, Tulips for Evening, mm-hmm. is just a delight to read. So thank you so much for the interview, and thank you for writing the book. And for you that are listening, thanks for listening. Thank you, Nina, for having me. Right on Time is activist scholar Kenyaga Yamada Taylor with her forceful new book, Hashtag Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation. It received rave reviews from Michelle Alexander and Dr. Cornell West. She will speak on Monday evening, December 5th at Impact Hub Oakland, 2323 Broadway near Grand in Oakland, California. This KPFA benefit has wheelchair access. I'm Anita Johnson of Hard Knock, excited to be hosting this gathering. Get tickets at brownpapertickets.com, Marcus Books, or other indie bookshops. Get full information on the KPFA website for Kenyaga Yamada Taylor, December 5th. KPFA in Berkeley, 94.1. KPFB in Berkeley at 89.3.